So Sue Veal lives in Rochester, New Hampshire. My home is a double-wide 2003 home. It has skylights throughout. It's got a nice open floor plan. Anyone walking into my house would probably not realize it's a mobile home. It's just a house. She spent about $120,000. She sold her previous house and decided this would be a good investment, a good place to write out her retirement. But rent prices have risen 50% since she moved in six years ago. And she's saying that a lot of her neighbors are feeling the pinch as well. That's economics reporter Abba Batarai. And she says that Sue's story is part of a growing trend across the U.S. for people living in mobile homes, rising prices with nowhere to go. She isn't sure what to do. She can cover rent right now, but she isn't sure how much longer that's going to be sustainable. And all around her, people are starting to put their mobile homes up for sale. Some of my neighbors are very, very upset and worried because their limited income is running out. And I I feel emotionally upset when I think about what my next step needs to be, might need to be, um, whether I can afford to live here next year or the year after. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 7th. Today, we're talking to Abba about how rising prices at mobile home parks could destabilize the whole housing market. Then, later in the show, we'll hear about how school heat days are a thing, and kids are missing out on school because of climate change. I've been writing a lot about rising apartment rents and, you know, we're seeing increases of 20, 30, 40 percent over the last year throughout the country. And so that got me thinking about sort of what the end result is. Where are all of these people going to go? And the option that I kept hearing from a lot of renters who were being priced out of their apartments and their houses was that they were going to consider mobile homes. Um, So then I decided to look at the mobile home market. And sure enough, it's under a ton of strain because there is so much demand. And at the same time, there are very limited options. There aren't many mobile home parks, sort of, especially in city centers and suburban areas. They tend to be in more rural parts of town. And there's a very limited supply of land that can house these homes. Could you describe a little bit of how mobile home ownership actually works? For the majority of mobile home residents, they own the actual mobile home that they live in. They usually pay for it in all cash or you can get a loan. They typically don't qualify for mortgages. And so they're taking out chattel hmm. loans that are more similar to what you might get to buy a car. And, and how much does that usually cost? Like how much is it to buy the actual home itself? You know, it ranges widely in price from about $25,000 to over $300,000, depending on where you live. Beyond that, though, almost all mobile home park residents are paying rent for the actual land that their house sits on. And so even if they've paid off their house or bought it with cash, they're having to pay this monthly fee that it can go up at any time. There often aren't locked-in leases, and if there are, you know, they're up for renewal, just like any apartment lease would be. For a lot of people who have been priced out of the traditional housing market, mobile homes have become a way to own something. They own the four walls that they live in and they feel like it's a sound investment. You know, they're they're getting sort of a cheaper option 
um, than a traditional house or an apartment, and they're just paying for the rent underneath their home. But as that rent goes up, many of them are saying that they're getting the worst of both worlds. They don't get mm. the benefits of home ownership. They don't get appreciating home prices or, you know, the resale value that comes with this soaring housing market. But at the same time, they don't get a lot of the protections that renters do. And they don't have that option of just picking up and leaving like they would if they lived in an apartment. In some ways, it almost feels like the worst of the housing market, meaning the worst of like the car market, right? Of like, as soon as you buy the thing, it starts to depreciate. Um, but at the same time that they're, you know, kind of beholden to their house, that it's like difficult to leave if you're underwater, if you um, don't have another option. Exactly. And that's what I heard over and over again, was that I thought this was a sound investment. I thought I was making a smart decision, but I would never do this again. Hmm. And can you talk about why this is important, like where the mobile home market fits into the larger housing market in the U.S. and, and the, the housing crisis? Overall, about 20 million Americans live in mobile homes. It makes up about 6% of the country's overall housing supply, but it is unequivocally the cheapest option for many families, especially if they don't receive government aid. Oftentimes, it's the most vulnerable populations that are already struggling to get by. Um, many of the mobile home residents I talk to are living on a fixed income. Maybe they're on Social Security or disability, and they just don't have any options beyond that. And this is another way that the housing market is really exasperating inequalities during the pandemic. I mean, we've seen homeowners benefit from skyrocketing home values. All of a sudden, they built all of this equity and, you know, they're not having to worry about their monthly fees going up. They have locked in mortgages. But renters and people who want to buy homes are being priced out. And that's even more so the case for many mobile homeowners who are already in a more vulnerable position than others. Can you tell me about some of the other conversations that you've had with people who have been experiencing this? I talked to a number of people around the country. Many of them are retired and they live in these 55 and up retirement communities um, where, you know, maybe they used to own a condo or a house in the past. They sold it. They used up all their cash to buy a mobile home thinking it would be a good way to save money. And, you know, they would just have to pay for the rent underneath their homes. But now that that rent underneath is skyrocketing, they're really struggling one woman I talked to, Virginia Rubio in Washington State, has been living in the same mobile home park for 30 years. She currently pays $350 a month to rent the land for her home. And now that's going up to $1,000 a month. Wow. So for somebody who receives about $860 a month in Social Security, the math just doesn't work. And she's trying to figure out what on earth she can do. And what did she say about what it has been like to see the prices go up? so quickly. I mean, what's been her reaction? I mean, I think she's still processing it. She recently got a notice saying that rents would be going up and it sounds like the entire community is in shock. I mean, $350 to $1,000 a month. I don't know anybody who could absorb that in their housing budget without serious strain. And for a lot of these folks in particular, um, like Virginia, she owns the actual house that she lives in. Um, and it's very difficult to move a mobile home, especially if it's older. It's next to impossible. And even if you can move it, it costs, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars up to about $15,000 just to move it. So that's not an option. The only option she sees is picking up and leaving. But that means leaving behind her biggest investment, which is her house. Hmm. And why is this happening? Like, what are the factors at play here that are specifically affecting the mobile home market? 
part of this is a continuation of what we've been seeing for the last decade, which is that private equity firms have been swooping in and buying up these mobile home parks. Hmm. Many mobile home parks used to be owned by mom and pop operators or, you know, they were family owned. But as those owners age out, maybe the next generation isn't so keen on keeping it going. So they're selling to corporate owners. They're selling to private equity firms who are suddenly, you know, very interested and using government-sponsored loans to buy up these properties. They usually do some quick renovations, you know, improve the streets, maybe improve some of the plumbing, and then jack up the rent. There is a, a sister park owned by the same company that owns mine in the same city in Rochester that has just been sold. And it is a large family mobile home park. And, you know, we, we never know whether our park is for sale or not. Um, rumors come and go all the time, but I've seen parks, other parks in the, in the city, um, being sold to developers who are going to pull everything out and put in condos. I don't think that would happen here because we're so big and the homes are very nice, but there could be a corporate buyer or a developer that just wants to own this and make money from it. So that's, that's our main worry here. You know, it's surprising to hear that because, I mean, for mobile home parks, I would imagine that for a private equity firm, that's pretty small potatoes. But clearly, I mean, I guess they see a a real money-making opportunity here to buy up these mobile home parks around the country. Yeah, you know, there's a sense that this is a very captive audience. Um, Most mobile home park residents own their houses, but they're still beholden to the park because they're having to pay that rent. So you can raise it however much you want. And they really have very few options. They don't have the same protections that homeowners do, and they don't have the same protections that renters do. It's kind of true that mobile home owners have fewer rights as homeowners than owners of stick-built homes because we don't own the land. We pay taxes on our home that we own. So we, we pay city and state taxes on the property. But there aren't a lot of protections in place for what happens when a park is sold, for instance. So everything about the property is more difficult because we don't own the land. So it sounds like there's a big part of this that is top down of these big companies coming in and saying, look, we can charge more and we will charge more because that's how we're going to make money off of owning this mobile home park. But but I wonder if there's also a part of it that has to do with demand and the number of people who want to live in mobile homes right now. Absolutely. That's a big part of it right now. And that's a growing part of it as people find that they just can't afford many other types of housing. And then on top of that, we have inflation. We have rising prices for everything, you know, utilities, land prices, property taxes, and all of that is getting factored in as well. And so for people who decide that they can no longer afford the cost of their mobile home or the land that the mobile home sits on, like what is then their next option? I mean, they can walk away from this investment, but what do they do then? That is a great question. I mean, for so many of the homeowners I talk to, they just don't know what they're going to do. Many of them are considering living in their cars or, you know, maybe crashing with a friend for a little while until they can find an affordable option. You could try to resell for, you know, a fraction of what you paid for it usually. Um, But then where do you go? Where else can you afford the rent? And is there any help for these people? I mean, is there any... um assistance from the government in trying to help people be able to afford these increases in prices for their mobile homes? 
You know, it really depends. There's a very patchwork set of rules sort of that vary by city, by county, by state. And so I think more jurisdictions are starting to realize that this is a group of renters that needs help. They're starting to loop them into maybe larger rent control and eviction protections, starting to provide um, more avenues for them. But on the whole, this has been a very overlooked part of the population. And why do you think that there's not more scrutiny or regulation when it comes to mobile home parks and and the companies that own these parks and are charging really high prices right now? You know, this was a question that I asked so many of the experts that I spoke with. And a lot of them said it just came down to the stigma that we have surrounding mobile home parks. It's just become a blind spot for local governments. A lot of people don't really know what happens at that level unless you live in a mobile home park. I mean, I think just the sheer number of readers who wrote in to say that they were surprised that mobile home residents own their homes but are renting the land underneath it was was indicative that a lot of people just don't understand the segment of the housing market. Abba Batarai is an economics reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. After the break, why schools in many parts of the country are closing because of rising temperatures. We'll be right back. So... Climate change is having just a huge impact, slow impact, but a significant impact on schools and their ability to function in sort of the end of the school year when it starts going into summer. And then at the beginning of the school year, when we're coming out, we are seeing more and more days where there is unbearable heat. That is education reporter Laura Meckler. She spoke with producer Julie Deppenbrock about how across the country, unseasonably high heat has forced schools to send students home more and more. A decade ago, districts in the U.S. were canceling school for heat an average of three to four days a year. But now it's almost doubled. This is not really an issue so much in the South. You might think, oh, this must be terrible in Atlanta or Miami or Tallahassee where it's just so hot. But no, those are places that have long been hot and they have air conditioning for the most part in school districts in that region. But when you go north to places like Philadelphia, where it was never considered a necessity at all, but now with climate change, those places are starting to see more and more hot days. And as a result, there is just more and more days that are just unbearable for students in the classroom. We're the ones doing, you know, all the work in these hot classrooms, endangering our health and putting ourselves at risk each and every day just to attend school. So Richard Gordon is principal of Paul Robeson High School in West Philadelphia. He was actually the 2021 National Principal of the Year. And he is facing something that is tough, would be tough for any principal, which is a hot building. I have been a principal for about 11 years, uh, nine at my current location. In a lot of cases, you have kids who just don't, who won't even attend school because it's just too hot for them to attend. So it's just amazingly frustrating. And then from the teacher's perspective, they're dealing with issues that, you know, they're trying not to focus on. They're hot as well. But they're also trying to do their best not to have the students focus on it or have themselves focus on it because their frustrations will come through in their daily practice as well. 
his building is old. It was completed in 1958. So we are talking about a very long time ago. And at that time, there was no conversation about air conditioning. There is no air conditioning in his building. There are not even any window units in his building. Philadelphia is a big urban district serving kids with a lot of needs and they don't exactly have tons of extra money sitting around for these things. So unlike perhaps some suburban districts that might have the funding to try to retrofit a building for cooling, they do not. So in his school, it gets pretty hot. It is extremely difficult. The focus isn't there. You can imagine that teachers are getting frustrated because you have students who are constantly trying to move to keep themselves cool. We have fans in the, in the rooms and the fans are very limited in its effect on cooling down the room. All it does is circulate the same, you know, unventilated air that currently exists. And we're trying our best to kind of get as much fresh air in the building. And you can imagine the challenges of just trying to keep everybody, keep 30 kids in a room cool all at once. So I'm wondering why don't these schools have air conditioning? You know, a simple answer, money. It's expensive. It is really expensive to add air conditioning in. And also even just like window units, you might think, well, what's the big deal? Just add some window units. The biggest challenge that we have is that the school district of Philadelphia, just like many urban cities around the country, have a huge liability when it comes to its older buildings. And unfortunately, what you'll find is that a lot of those liabilities also exist in some of the most challenged and most vulnerable communities in Philadelphia and around the country. In fact, I talked to a um, school board member in White Plains, New York, where some parents came to them and they said, we'll pay for them. We'll raise money for window units. But it wasn't that simple. You actually also have to upgrade the electrical in the entire building so it can handle the increased load. So this is just a very expensive proposition. Now, if you're in a district where you've recently built new buildings, chances are you add, you put air conditioning in. But um, a lot of places are still operating in older buildings that were built, you know, decades ago at a time when, when this was just really not an issue. So the Government Accountability Office, which is a, you know, a federal office that looks at a lot of different issues, they found that about 41% of public school districts in this country needed to update or replace their HVAC systems in at least half of their schools which amounts to about 36,000 schools across the country. And of course, there are just like a lot of needs. I mean, this is not the only thing that districts are trying to confront. Now, there is federal money um, through the COVID relief, some of which is being put to HVAC solutions. I mean, the in general, we've heard more about kind of air filtration to try to like re- replace the air in a room to keep germs from circulating, to try to mitigate the risk of COVID transmission. But in some cases, that money is also being used towards air conditioning systems. So you're able to kind of take two things on. But these are not um, these are not small projects. Hmm. And thinking about kids in classrooms this time of year, you know, I turned off the AC at my own house just to do this interview. And it's only for, you know, an hour or so. And I'm already getting really uncomfortable. And I'm just thinking about what effect can extreme heat have on children who are trying to learn? You know, and that's the thing. It isn't really even just about being uncomfortable as there's actual impacts on kids. There was a study done in 2020 that found that students scored worse on standardized exams for every additional day of 80 degree or higher temperatures that there were. Um, Basically, 
you can't focus. I mean, and back to our, our principal in Philadelphia. We're continually putting our students at risk, not just health-wise, but also just endangering their futures as well by not investing in those communities that are most vulnerable. There's a reason why those schools underperform. When I spoke to him, he talked about the fact that like, he walks up there and to the second floor, it is oppressively hot. He looks on the cameras that he can see, the security cameras around the building, and he sees kids walking around trying to get comfortable, just kind of fidgeting in their seats. I find myself that the work that we're doing here at Paul Ropes in high school is that we're advocating from the lens of poverty and looking at all the issues, including, you know, our climate and our environment as part of the the things that are impacting the generational poverty that's holding back communities of color and communities of lower economic statuses that are preventing those demographics from being successful. So there are academic impacts on all of this, and it isn't in an equitable way. Those academic impacts are more significant in these urban areas where the heat tends to be worse. I'm wondering too, what's at risk here? And is this just going to keep getting worse? Well, that's what the scientists tell us, right? Is that our planet continues to warm. And as that happens, we obviously see all sorts of impacts, um, you know, which the Post has done an enormous amount of work documenting. But this is one of them. You know, one point that a lot of people make is that there are all sorts of places that are air conditioned. You know, you go into a 7-Eleven and there's air conditioning. And yet we have other places that are so hot that they can't even focus on what's being said by the teacher in front of them. It's like as a as a country, we seem to have a very like poor management of um, of our our national HVAC problem. Um, this is a problem that people recognize, but it's just a lot easier to identify than it is to solve. Laura Meckler, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Laura Meckler is a national education reporter for The Post. Richard Gordon is principal of Paul Robeson High School in West Philadelphia. The last day of school for his students is June 14th, which means one more week without air conditioning. This story was produced by Julie Deppenbrock. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Alexis Diao. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.